Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. going to read from Acts 9, uh, if you want to follow along, just starting at verse 1. It's the story of Saul's conversion. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he went on his way Uh, As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And he has not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. It's 
Today we come to perhaps the most famous conversion story in all of church history. Uh, A Jew who persecuted Christians to a Christian who was persecuted by Jews. A legalist who lived by restrictive rules and regulations to the pioneer of Christian missions who preached a message of grace to the Gentiles. A man who sanctioned the murder of the first Christian martyr to a man who was himself martyred for his Christian faith. We have arrived at the conversion of a Jewish Pharisee named Saul, who became the apostle named Paul. Now, in our culture, this whole idea of Christian conversion, um, it's really rather confusing, just the idea of conversion. Uh, On the one hand, you know, this idea of specifically Christian conversion um, makes people nervous because We think that it's really quite narrow-minded to expect anyone to change, right? It's quite primitive or retrogressive or or whatever to to expect people to change in some way. But on the other hand, we're simultaneously living in a day and age that just celebrates change. Uh, Our culture lords the freedom for people to reinvent themselves, um, for people to seek after their authentic selves and when found, own it and claim it irrespective of the world around them. Well, by the end of today, I hope and I pray that there is no confusion about what the Bible means by this idea of conversion. So famous is this story of the Apostle Paul's conversion that it's retold two more times in the book of Acts, so take notes and get used to it. We're going to be coming back here a couple of times in the weeks and months to come. But we even have a phrase for it today, uh, this idea of a Damascus Road experience. You may have heard that phrase before. To say that is to relate in some way to this story of Saul becoming Paul, in that you're identifying with this idea of going one way in life only to be stopped um, and then have your plans and your purposes forever changed moving forward. We call it a, a Damascus Road experience because it was on the first century road to Damascus that this um, dramatic situation took place. Uh, that was a, a, a road north from Jerusalem. It was a very... Uh, well-worn path for economic reasons amongst others. Now, because this is such a dramatic story, the Damascus Road experience, it can be a little bit intimidating, I think, when we come to reading it, at least it was for me. But right from the get-go, I want us all here in this room just to keep in mind this one simple truth. Every single story of conversion is unique. Every single story of Christian conversion is unique. To talk about Christian conversion is to talk about individual people that God meets personally wherever they're at in life, whether that's on a first century road to Damascus or a 21st century park bench in the Blue Mountains in the freezing cold at 6am like it was for me. But at the same time, while the particular details of any one story of conversion may differ, there is clearly something consistent amongst all of the stories that allows us to sit back and identify them all as conversion stories. Right? So the particular details are different, but there are shared characteristics which define them as conversion stories. And what I want to do today as we get into this is consider four of these shared characteristics from the particular details of Saul here in Acts chapter 9. Four elements that I think characterize Christian conversion, and these are going to be our outline for today. First, it begins with a sense of restlessness. Then it goes to a sense of awakening. These aren't necessarily chronological. They can be simultaneous. They don't put too much in in the order. 
but generally a sense of restlessness that leads to a sense of awakening um, and from their acceptance and a burden then to bear witness in light of all of that. Now, typically we associate Christian conversion with a particular moment in a person's life when they put their faith in Jesus. But I think these elements are, well, could be kind of seen as cyclical in that they, they tend to characterise the whole of the Christian life as well. After all, a Christian person is saved in a moment, yes, but is one who is also being saved in the active sense of growing out the reality of what that means for them. I mean, I've been a Christian for years, right, and I still find myself going through these motions of restlessness and needing to be awakened and then being reminded that I'm accepted and then having the burden all the more to bear witness and so on and so forth. So, you know, whether you're questioning Christianity here today or whether you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember and you can't even identify a Damascus Road experience in your life, I think there's something here for all of us today. So let's buckle our seatbelts and get into it. First of all, restlessness. Check this out, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, prior to this point in the book of Acts, the author Luke has mentioned Saul three times, and he's painted a pretty gloomy picture of this bloke, Paul. Uh, the first mention was in Acts 7:58, and you recall that, that was at the martyrdom of Stephen. And there we read, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of this young man named Saul. So Saul is clearly no friend of Christians. We know that much. And Luke makes this clear again in 8:1, where he writes, Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. And in 8:3, where it says that Saul began to destroy the church by going house to house in Jerusalem, dragging away men and women. Saul was a bitter, frustrated opponent of Jesus and his growing band of followers, referred to here as those belonging to the way, because, again, Christianity isn't a single moment in a person's life. It is a way of life. Now, interestingly, the verb used in 8.3 to describe when Saul began to destroy the church, that word that we translate as destroy is the same word used in the Greek translation of Psalm 80.13. And there, in the Psalter, the word is used to describe a wild boar just running through a vineyard, ripping and routing and smashing everything up. <laughs> so I think by using this kind of language, Luke is trying to paint a picture of the pathology of Saul. I mean, look at what Luke says here next, verse 1. Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This breathing doesn't mean to exhale. Uh, it doesn't mean to breathe out like he was just breathing out these threats all over everyone. It actually means to inhale, to take in, to breathe in. And if we take in oxygen to live, right, then in effect, Luke is saying that these threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord are literally what Saul lived for. Now, if you're familiar with Paul in the New Testament, if you've read ahead, <laughs> uh, it can be difficult to pick up what Luke is putting down here. But try and bracket that off as best as you can. I mean, Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, he was the guy that, you know, pioneered grace. He put up with so much. And he did. He got beaten. He got flogged. He got imprisoned. He got shipwrecked. He got bitten by a snake. 
and he ended up losing his head for the cause of Christ. Yes, Paul was a man who suffered persecution. But Saul was a man who inflicted suffering and persecution. And look here from our our study in Acts, from here on, Paul's going to be the main character. And I think if we slow down a little bit here and just at least appreciate where he has come from with this man Saul, we're actually, hopefully, today on, at least for me, I will never read Paul the same way again once we appreciate where he's come from. Grace, in a word, is the change. And this idea of grace means undeserved favour. Saul doesn't deserve what's happening to him here on the road to Damascus. He persecuted many. He jailed many. He killed many people. He was young and he was restless for what he believed. And like a bad parody of Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you know that outward spread of gospel proclamation that we've been talking about over the weeks, beginning in Jerusalem, going to Judea, to Samaria, and then right to the end of the earth. Saul was responsible for the outward spread of gospel persecution beginning in Jerusalem. And he takes his raging fury, and that's a quote from Acts 26 in his own words, raging fury on the road to Damascus, but spoiler alert, mission aborted. Now, I have a question at this point as I was reading this text. Why was Saul such a rager? He talks about this in a number of his other letters as well. But why was he such a rager? Like, not all Pharisees were like this. Think about Saul's teacher, Gamaliel. We met him back in Acts chapter 5, where he was described as a teacher of the law who was held in honour by all of the people. I mean, pretty level-headed dude. Tony took us through his address there to the disciples. He seemed pretty reasonable. He wasn't carrying on like a wild boar. (laughs) So why Saul? Well, we get a hint as to why when we look at Paul's retelling of this particular event later on in Acts 26. We read these words. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Interesting. Now, what is a goad? I've got a couple of farmers here. Cattle prod, right? That's what a goad is. It's something that literally goads, it eggs you on, it niggles you. It's, it's usually in this context, it was like a long pointy stick that just poked people or cattle <laughs> in a cert- so that they would move in a certain direction. Now, what happens when you kick against a sharp pointy stick? It's going to stick into you and it's going to hurt all the more and you'll feel more goaded and you'll kick harder and you'll feel more goaded and you'll kick harder and on and on and on we go. If this keeps on happening, you would end up frustrated, perhaps even acting like, I don't know, a wild boar, restless. You see, it's as though Jesus was trying to say to Saul, mate, it's hard to keep this up, isn't it? (laughs) Like to just rampage like a wild animal running around trying to do your own thing, always restless, never content. Just, Just chill out. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. But Saul wouldn't. He was young and he was restless. He resisted the prodding. Why? 
Well, Saul was clearly a man of conviction. He was like the prodigal PhD Pharisee dude who had all of the answers to all of the questions. That's why he set out on the road to Damascus, because he knew who God was and that this Jesus was not him. That's why it was blasphemy. That's why he got the letters. That's why he was going to Damascus. Like Saul, all of us live with convictions in our lives that pull us in one way or another. You may be a Christian here, you may not be a Christian, but either way, we all have convictions that steer us in a certain direction. So what is that direction for you? What road are you on? What is your Damascus? may not be a bad thing, right? It's just something that's pulling your attention in a certain direction. Well, think about Saul. He was a Pharisaic Jew, okay? That means that, amongst other things, he was zealous for the law. Now, there were 613 laws, but just think about the well-known 10, the summary. What's the 10th commandment? Rhetorical question, you don't need to raise your hand. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, here's the thing about that 10th commandment, and I'm leaning heavily here on some insights from Tim Keller. This idea of coveting, uh, it, just, it doesn't just mean to want or desire something uh, that somebody else has, like, ugh, my mates have 100 acres, I just wish I had 100 acres, you know, to run around and enjoy. No, to covet is to have such an intense desire to possess something that over time it becomes less about the thing that you desire and more about how consumed you are by your own sense of dissatisfaction and dis- discontentment. To covet is essentially to be dissatisfied with yourself and where you're at in life. And that's why it leads to restlessness. As we try to overcome this inner sense of a lack or deficiency, we get restless, we go on the hunt find something to fill up what it is that we're lacking inside. The Tenth Commandment, therefore, is a call to rest and to be content. If you're obedient to the First Commandment, by the way, do not have any other gods before me, then then you're going to be obedient to the last because out of knowing who God is will flow a heart of contentment, satisfaction in your soul. So this is the Old Testament law, right? This is something that Saul believes as a Jew and isn't a teacher in as a Jew. But here's a question. Is he living it? Like consistently? Saul believes he knows God, right? But can he truly say that he's content? That he's obedient to the tenth? I, I think no is the obvious answer here. Look, he's kicking and squealing like a pig. There is restlessness in the life of Saul, which means that there is an inconsistency. There is a contradiction between what he believes on the one hand uh, about who God is and how he goes about living his life in light of that belief. So again, my question for us here today is whether we believe in God or not, can we say that there is consistency in our lives between what we believe and the way we live? We all go through ups and downs. I'm not saying that we don't. I'm not saying that we're not going to feel discontent from time to time. I'm asking all of you here right now today, when it's all said and done, is there a ground for your hope of rest? Can you say in your heart of hearts, 
even if you don't feel it, I know that I will be content. Or are we carrying on like this guy? Young and restless, always running, never resting. I'll put up my hand and confess that often this is me, okay? I am this guy. Um, to be vulnerable with you for a moment, uh, for the first time in my life these last 12 months, I have had physiological symptoms of anxiety. I didn't know what it was. I'm like, every day at 2 p.m., Julie, my jaw starts clicking, and I get like this thing in my throat that I can't swallow, so I'm drinking water, and she's like, ah, oh, sweetie, you're so out of touch with your own body. <laughs> um, I had no clue what was going on. I was anxious. So what are we going to do with that? Are we going to try and understand what's happening? Are we being goaded in some way? What are the prods that we should be paying attention to? Or am I kicking against it? Now, I'm not saying that when I do that as a Christian that I'm slipping in and out of my Christianity or anything like that. I don't believe that's possible. I'm just saying that there is a sense in which, even as Christians, we go through seasons of restlessness. And when we do, we must ask ourselves, what is going on? For Saul, well, if Jesus is the farmer, Saul is the animal. There are some pointy sticks here that are being used as instruments to prod him. What are they? What are the goads? Well, again, we aren't told here, but I think if we try and stay within the contours of Scripture, we get some hints. Think about Stephen's sermon back in Acts chapter 7 that Mick took us through a couple of weeks ago. That sermon was profound in its content and its charisma. Uh, And I think it's very likely that Jesus used that sermon to poke at Saul. I mean, towards the end of the sermon, what did Stephen say? It's almost prophetic of what we're reading here. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. There it is, kicking against the goads. In Romans 2, Paul says that all human beings, regardless of who you are or what you believe, all human beings have a conscience that brings conflicting thoughts. And I wonder, I just wonder if one of the conflicting thoughts in the head and heart of Saul as he was listening to Stephen there was these words of his own inner restlessness. Because here's the thing, Stephen never named Saul in that sermon. Never. So if Saul felt convicted by it, it's because Saul named Saul. It's his conscience. This is how conviction works. This is Saul's conscience stabbing his Pharisaic heart with the words of Stephen that spoke directly to his discontentment, his restlessness, and therefore his lack of obedience to the law that he's meant to be a champion of, right? Saul was exposed by the truth that Stephen preached, a man whose face shone like an angel. His conscience would have been pricked, he was vulnerable, and he would have, it would have been appropriate at that time for Saul to probably repent and get to know Jesus, but he didn't. He kicked, he kicked. And what happened? Well, when you have no shelter for your shame, what do you do? Maybe go on a road to Damascus and try and find your own shelter by reasserting yourself and proving that you're right. We shame people from our own places of shame. Saul sanctions Stephen's murder. He goes to the authorities, the high priests, who, by the way, was a Sadducee. Paul's a Pharisee, so there's political collusion going on here. It just goes to show how much of a problem this new emerging church was back then. He gets the authority. He goes to Damascus in this rage of self-directed worth. That's what a wrong view of God will do. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its way is the end of death. 
Now, you might object, David, um, or maybe not, maybe this is just me and my own study. Um, wait a second, man, are you trying to sit up there and tell me, uh, you know, I'm not perfect, I'm not trying to say I'm perfect, but are you trying to liken me to this guy called Saw by saying we're all on a road and our insecurities drive us in directions? Because I'm not killing anyone, man. Like, don't lump me in with his pathology. And fair enough, you might be right. You might not be killing people like Saul, but you are killing yourself with work, with insecurities, with anxieties, with indecision, with addictions, with a sense of self-sufficiency to pull yourself through whatever it is you're going through, with trying to be someone you're not. I'm not trying to make a point here about mental health, please. There are genuine medical issues that need to be addressed and worked through. I'm talking about on a, a more general spiritual level here. May we be a people who do not kick against the goads, the prodding. May we hear and heed the direction of our farmer because who knows what road that restlessness will take us down and what irreversible decisions we are going to have to live with for the rest of our lives. Saul's actions here, he had to live with. This is restlessness. This is resisting God's call on your life. Secondly, we move here now, verse 3 on, into awakening. Saul, the bounty hunter, hits the road, determined to sort out this Christian cult uprising. And we pick up here, verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. He's literally within the sight of Damascus. Um, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard this voice say to him, Saul, Saul, notice the doubling, Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now look at Saul's reply here, he's, he's thrown to the ground and he says, who are you, Lord? At this point, Saul doesn't know what's going on. Uh, he hears this voice, he gets knocked to the ground physically, but also in humility with the realisation that something is happening which he, the PhD Pharisee man, does not quite understand. And it's got to be hard for a man like Saul. He's the answers man, not the question man. It's because of what he believes, by the way, about God that he's going to Damascus. So even though he doesn't know who this Lord is, he knows who it's not. It's not Jesus, because the Christians are confused on that. That's why I'm on this journey. So he knows that much. But clearly there is a recognition of an authority here because he addresses this manifestation as Lord. Who are you, Lord? Well, imagine his surprise, <laughs> his holy terror when he hears these words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The very thing Saul thought he was so right about is the very thing he was so wrong about. This is awakening, a wholly terrifying awakening, but awakening nonetheless. The restlessness has stopped at this point. There's no more kicking. There's nowhere for him to run. Saul is laid to ground before the awesome reality of the resurrected Christ. C.S. Lewis uh, describes his own conversion like a mouse searching for a cat. The irony being, of course, that a mouse would never search for a cat because that would be a rude awakening. 
It was for Lewis, who describes himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England that night. He could no longer deny or suppress the truth that he knew about God. Now, again, this may not be your experience. Every Christian story of conversion is unique. You may have experienced overwhelming joy when you ran into the reality of Jesus. But this was certainly the case for C.S. Lewis, but also for Saul here. There is a clear point of awakening which humbles him with the reality that he was wrong about Jesus and therefore wrong about God. There's something truly novel in this idea of God. Check this out. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. If you were Saul, what, what might you be thinking at this point? Um, Jesus, okay. Aren't you supposed to be dead? <laughs> Wait, so you're telling me that Peter and uh, Stephen were right this whole time? Okay. But even if this is you, Jesus, I'm not, it's the first time I met you, man. Like, it's not about you. I'm just going after your followers. So how, in what sense is this you being persecuted? Well, you see, here's the thing about that, Saul. You cannot separate me from my people. That's what Jesus is saying here. You cannot separate the head from the body. To strike God's people is to strike God himself. That is why Paul can later write, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. God is inseparable from his people. Colossians 1, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. What is that mystery, Paul? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The distance of the God saw thought he knew has just been closed at literally light speed. God is not a removed and distant father, hidden behind a temple veil. That veil was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross. And now by his spirit, God temples in us, which is why to trample on Christians is to trample on the very courts of God's dwelling place. How serious does God take that? Read the Old Testament. To be a Christian is to be the sanctuary of the Holy of Holies, which is a blessing and a caution, but it is not a vanity. And if you think it is, then need we be remembered of the meaning of grace. It's not because of us. It's in spite of us. It's because of who Jesus is that persecution against God's people is persecution against God who temples in God's people. And here on the road to Damascus, this would have been a wholly terrifying awakening for Saul. But that wouldn't always be so. In the years to come, this same terrifying truth would have become a source of great comfort for Paul. Like when he finds himself in chains in a prison, all alone, writing to his friends at Philippi, in any and every circumstance, I have learnt the hard way, <laughs> I have learnt the secret of contentment. Really, you, Saul, you're the dude that's learnt contentment. You crazy wild boar man, you have learnt contentment. What has happened? I stopped kicking. And now I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength. This is an awakening. And we will appreciate this all the more when we get to verse 16 when Jesus says, I will show him, Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. If Paul didn't live in the grace he preached, he wouldn't have been able to endure the sufferings that he endured. 
What we have here, folks, don't miss it. Do not miss this. What we have here is a story of Christian conversion that begins with, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And ends with, Paul, Paul, you are one of my people. When you are persecuted, I am persecuted. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So Paul hits the road to Damascus. He runs into reality, which can hurt. (laughs) And he falls to the ground. He's blinded. We pick up here, verse 6, with Jesus saying, Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. There are a few really interesting things going on here. For one, God doesn't change the destination of Saul. Uh, He just keeps on taking him to Damascus. In other words, God is using for good what Saul meant for evil. And for another, it's really interesting that Saul has this great awakening to the reality of who Jesus is, but then he's plunged into darkness for three days without food or water. Why? Well, we aren't told, so anything I say here is speculation. But again, I think we can figure some stuff out from within the contours of Scripture. What is one reason that we fast? Psalm 35:13, to humble ourselves in prayer. I will sackcloth, I afflicted myself with fasting, I prayed with my head bowed on my chest. So could it be that Saul was kept in darkness without food or water to humble himself and to get to know God for the the first time? To speak with and to hear with this Jesus whom he had been persecuting. I mean, it's interesting, when Saul had physical sight, he was spiritually blind. Now he has spiritual sight, but he's physically blind. It's like God is pulling him apart piece by piece so that he gets to the end of himself and he realizes, I've got nothing left, I need to listen (laughs) and stop speaking. God is breaking Saul down so that he can get to the end of himself with the realization that the question, who am I, begins with who Jesus is. So there's a lot of talk about identity, about self-discovery and self-assertion. For some, that's their career. For others, that's sexuality or gender. Uh, For others, that's family ties and social status. All of these are enormously important things. I'd never want to minimize those. But none of them in and of themselves give a comprehensive answer to this question, who am I? I may have a job. I may have attractions to these kinds of people. But who I am is so much more than any one of these things. That's why I can leave that job and my dignity and value and worth and identity and who I am doesn't go away. And for the first time ever in his life, Saul is here coming to realize for himself that the answer to the question, who am I really, begins with who Jesus is. It's not found in his Pharisaic career or his knowledge of the law. It's found in the very one that he was persecuting. I mean, Saul was a Pharisee, right? So he would have memorized the Hebrew Scriptures, at least the Torah, the first five books. He didn't need his eyes to read the Torah, therefore. He had it all in his head. So there he is in the dark. What do you think he was doing? Probably meditating on the words that he knew. And with this newfound ingredient of Jesus, the Messiah, do you think he was maybe going back and rewriting his entire Hebrew theology? I reckon he was. What Scriptures do you reckon he would have gone to? Well, we're not told, but let's just play around with the thought for a little bit. In the head of a second temple Jew, uh, living in the first century AD, the Messiah was a political figure. 
God's anointed who would come as a conquering hero to save Israel. But if Jesus is this Messiah and he came as a servant who died on the cross, well, how can he be the Messiah? Well, maybe it could be possible if he died for nothing that he actually did. But then if Jesus didn't die for anything he did, who did it? Who did he die for? Somebody else? Doesn't, wait a second, doesn't the Isaiah prophet talk a bit about this? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The Jews were awaiting a strong Messiah. Okay, all right, I'm a Jew. I've got that. I am awaiting my strong Messiah. But hang on, now I know that's Jesus. How can that be unless I'm willing to turn upside down my idea of what strong means? Enter in Isaiah again. God is a God who turns things upside down. Jesus is the Messiah because he and he alone was strong enough to be weak. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Now wait a second. Lamb. Not Australia Day. Old Testament sacrificial system. That reminds me of something strange that King David once wrote when he prayed, For you, Lord, will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. If Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice, then God doesn't need the blood of animals. He just wants my humble acceptance of his sacrifice, which is my contrition, my recognition of my own brokenness before him, that he can then use me and remake me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, hold on one more theological second. And once for all there, if that's the case, well, that reminds me of what God said way back at the beginning of it all to the patriarch Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great. That's the Jews. I'm with you. So that you Jews will be a blessing. Blessing to who? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's who. Hebrew kings, Hebrew prophets, Hebrew patriarchs, all preach one consistent messianic message fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The lights are coming on for Saul in the darkness. This was an awakening for the man. The scriptures are all about Jesus. A eureka moment, to be sure. It's almost like the lights turning on or the blindness that being able to see now as um, shared by that man that was healed by Jesus. You know, I don't care what you say, Pharisees. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. This is the way of Christian conversion, by the way. It's subversion. We all like sheep have gone astray, restless on a road going our own way, but then it's like somebody turns on the lights and we see that what we've been chasing after all along is not the answers to our questions. Can't satisfy the pull of the relational desires that we all have. Aren't a true compass to navigate us through life. You know, when I was in um, flight school uh, doing instrument training, I was told that pilots who enter into inclement weather have, if they're not trained on instruments, they have on average 178 seconds before spatial disorientation occurs and they end up in a graveyard spin. Pilots need instruments, some point of reference outside of themselves to navigate through storms. The human heart needs some 
thing, someone outside of itself to navigate through the storms of life. And here's why, 1 John 3.20. It's become a favorite verse of mine this week. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Isn't that neat? If all you ever learn and love in life rests on your own abilities and your own achievements, then you're only as good as your abilities and your achievements. But that's not reality. That's not reality. To be human is to stumble, it's to fall, it's to fail. And if we're ever to get up from that ground of our own failings, we need somebody on the outside of us who can reach down and lift us up. You know, in every turn the world grows colder, darkness dims the light of day. Lights and sounds, they lure me closer to my shame, I yield again. But compromise gives me no answer for that emptiness I have inside. Lord, I'm tired of this old nature. I can't fight it on my own, but I don't have to. Because you came near as friend and helper. You lift me up when I fall down. By those hands pierced for my failure, you restore. God, you alone restore. That is a song of conversion. It's a song of contrition. It's a song of desperate clinging onto the hands of Jesus that he might be the greatest of all of our heart's affections and mind's attention. He is the God who is there and he is not silent. He tells you that you are loved even when you don't feel it. He tells you that you have a a place to belong in this world even when you feel like there's nothing here for you. He tells you that you don't have to try and be someone that you're not because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He is good news. And when people tell me, and I've had it last two weeks, Christian conversion is such a primitive, narrow-minded, antiquated idea, my burden when I'm looking at these people is that they would know the truth of this gospel all the more because they clearly do not get it. This is good news in every sense of the term, and I'll die for it. Restlessness awakening acceptance. After being blinded on the road, Saul has been led by the hand to Damascus. And we're introduced here, verse 10, to another character in Saul's conversion story. A disciple, a follower of Jesus at Damascus named Ananias, who was a man of good repute. We find that out later on in Acts 22. Like Saul, Ananias has a divine encounter. Now, Put yourself in Ananias' shoes here for a moment. God appears to him in a vision and he tells him to rise and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And Ananias is a little hedgy here. (laughs) He's like, "Uh, yeah, Lord, I've heard about this guy and how much evil he has done. In other words, Saul's reputation has preceded him to Damascus. And Ananias, understandably, is hesitant to go out and greet this man who essentially has a warrant out for his rest and has killed some of his Christian brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. But God says emphatically, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Kicking against the goads? Mm -mm. So Ananias departed. Here's the thing, Saul's reputation for persecuting Christians preceded him to Damascus. But the Lord's preparation for redeeming Saul was way ahead. God is never taken by surprise. He works all things, especially broken things, together for his good. And Ananias knew that 
He may not have known what Saul was going to do to him when he got there, but he knew the God who said, go. And that was enough. He wasn't restless. He was steady. Not all of us are called to be like the Apostle Paul. Let's be careful as we read this. Not all of us are called to that level of suffering either, okay? But all of us are called to have faith like Ananias. Saul was a driven Pharisee of the highest degree. He hit the road to Damascus because he believed that he was right and Jesus was wrong. Ananias was a humble follower of Jesus who set out to straight street because he believed Jesus was right and he was wrong. That's the way we're called to live to be humble enough to hear God's word over even our own. And this isn't like fideism or you know, blind faith or anything like that. Remember, Saul's the one who's blind here, not Ananias. But faith is never opposed to reason. It's founded upon it. You won't find a lexicographical, theological, or philosophical definition of the word faith that equates it with a lack of reason. Nowhere. Faith is always founded upon reason. And in this case... Ananias' reason is his security and assurance in the one who's calling him, namely Jesus. At the end of the day, that is what Christian faith is all about. Not who we are or what we can accomplish, but whose we are and what he has accomplished for us. In its most ultimate sense, Christian faithfulness is about resting in God's acceptance of you because of Jesus. I'll never forget a girl um, when I was leading university. Uh, Bible study back in the day she came to me and she asked me David how can I know that I'm saved how can I know that I have enough faith to be saved seems like a simple enough question but at the time I really did not know what to say to her all I could think of was this answer which may be okay but it's definitely not what I'd say now Um, all I said was well the fact that you care probably suggests that you are, otherwise why would you care? If I had another opportunity, and if she's listening, I'd want to tell her this. Christian faith is not about your ability to have faith, because that would make it all about you. Christian faith is about resting in Jesus' faithfulness. That doesn't mean you won't have questions. I have many. That doesn't mean you won't have doubts. That doesn't mean you won't have worries or anxieties. It means at the end, you can rest in the acceptance of God because of what Jesus has done for you. But that's not all. Look here at verse 17. We're accepted by God, but look at this. Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, what kind of a person can get up and go towards a hostile enemy without regard for themselves, and when they get there, have a heart to embrace that enemy, not just amicably, not just dutifully, not even as friend, but as family, brother, Paul, Saul? It's a person who recognizes that they themselves were once that enemy when another embraced them as family. This is why the gospel is also good news, because it brings social cohesion. Intimacy with God brings community with God's people. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
Christian conversion doesn't just bring a new relationship wherein you are accepted by God. It brings a new relationship with a whole body of people who accept you as kin. That's why coming to church, by the way, is so important because there's a whole lot of Jesus you will never discover without the faces of the people sitting around you here today. Ananias was accepted by Jesus. And because of that, Ananias accepted Saul as brother with knowing only bad stuff about the man. (laughs) And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained sight. Paul can see. Stephen's prayer is answered. Lord, do not hold this in against them. Paul is forgiven. Jesus' prayer is answered. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. From the strictest of legalists to a preacher of grace, Paul lived in the grace he proclaimed. He had to. Look at where he's come from. From a wild boar kicking and squealing from the pathology of somebody who moves with anger, inhaling threats and murder, to a man who is here now praying. Look at the the way that Luke has done that. Inhaling threats and murder, prayer. Restlessness, awakening, acceptance. Fourthly, finally, quickly, witness. Verse 18, then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. There are two ordinances in the church. Uh, One is the Lord's Supper, which we've taken today. And the second is baptism. Now, where the Lord's Supper is an internal reflection uh, on what the Lord has done for us, baptism is an outward demonstration of that. It's a way of bearing witness to those around you about the inner conversion. It's a testimony of what's happened inside, where you go down to yourself and you rise again in Jesus. So by getting baptized, Paul is publicly bearing witness or communicating to people what God has done inside of him. He's a changed man. And ever the teacher, with his newfound messianic theology, he just comes tearing out of the blind gates with all the zeal he had coming in, except this time it's for the truth, proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the son of God. I'm reminded of Tony's stories about those who come out of radical Islam into Christianity, only to go back radically converted and lose their lives in their first proclamation of Jesus. Understandably, this is all hard for the people of Damascus to kind of take in. There's a lot going on here. I mean, can you imagine the side eyes that this dude Paul would be getting? The whispers going on? Like, what is happening here? Is this like a covert way of getting in to kill us all? Restlessness, awakening, acceptance, witness. That's what's going on here. And more than the words is the witness of Paul's changed life. Paul is a living demonstration of the grace he proclaims. There's a saying that truth is rarely heard until grace is felt. Truth is rarely heard until grace is felt. Effective Christian witness is not just spoken, it's lived. And I think this is why Paul is such an effective witness to the grace of God. I said earlier that Saul had to live with the consequences of his wild animal actions as he went down the Damascus Road restless. I don't think, 
I don't think he could have ever erased the face of Stephen from his memory. The names and the sounds of the screams of those that he dragged out of their homes, kicking and screaming and locked up and murdered. And it was more than just Stephen, he tells us. Paul had to live with that. It begins here in Damascus with all the side-eye going on. But later we're going to see, and from here on it's all Paul, right? Later we're going to see that Paul will go back to Jerusalem, back to the place that he devastated and wreaked havoc, and he asks them for an offering. And I think there would have been some very uncomfortable conversations. You have a problem asking for an offering at church when we try and be nice to you? Imagine him coming to town. What would those conversations have been like? Again, I don't know, but I've been doing a lot of speculating. Let's speculate a little bit. I think he probably had to face people coming up to him saying, you locked up my mum. My daddy's not here because of you. I wonder if Stephen's parents came up to him. I wonder what Paul did. Fall on his knees, weep. I wonder if they went out to the tomb of Stephen and wept together and prayed together. The point is, Paul had to live with the consequences of his actions while he stubbornly resisted the Lord. And he had to live with those for the rest of his life. You don't come to Jesus and lose all of the memories of the hurts in the past. But they now become an opportunity to magnify the grace of God in your life. They now become an opportunity to bear witness to the change in your life. Because this grace is not something that Paul just proclaimed to people. It's something he had to own himself in his life. Think about this next time you go to Romans chapter 8 and you read these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. After today, I hope you can see that that is not just academic for Paul. He, he desperately clung to stuff like that. He had to because of who he was as the man Saul. I don't know about you, but after prepping for today, I don't think I'll ever read Paul the same way again. To understand Paul is to remember Saul. And isn't it just like God to use men like Paul, who wrote 48% of the books in the New Testament, to write his truth because it's enveloped in grace? So I want to leave you with a question for today. Christian, or still checking it out, what road are you on? This is my question for myself. I've got some big changes in my life, and I'm trying to figure out what road am I on? Am I kicking, or am I humbly walking with my Lord and Saviour Jesus in his arms? I don't know what convictions you have, Maybe you've been like me, restless and kicking. But I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that Jesus is the God that turns things upside down. He can turn broken things into beautiful things, weak things into strong things, humble things into exalted things, murderers to martyrs, persecutors to proclaimers, enemies to evangelists, 
adversaries to advocates. He did that for Saul. And if he can do that in his life, you better believe he can do it in yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that preserves testimonies of people that are not glamorous, that show the ugliness of sin, uh, the hurt of loss, the damage of ego and pride, and the curse of self-sufficiency that thinks we can make our own way in life and it's all going to be fine. We thank you for that, Father, because contrasted against that comes the warming glow of your brilliant light that blinded Saul and all of our hearts as we look at it and remember <laughs> that grace is such a fitting way to answer the malady of the human spirit because it picks us up when we don't deserve it and it calls us family when we don't deserve it. And it now emboldens us and strengthens us when we don't deserve it to actually get involved in the work of making other people realise this amazing message of grace when we do not deserve to be involved in that mission. What a privilege it is to be your servants. Father, at the end of the day, the Christian life is all about following you in your own footsteps. You weren't just blinded, you were crucified. You weren't just in darkness for three days. Darkness spread across the whole face of the earth when you died for three days. Lord, scales didn't just fall from your eyes. You came back alive. And that's what we're called to do as Christians, to die to self and to rise to you, because that is the true self that you have for us. I just ask everyone here, Lord, that you would have a, your hand on them and clearly be prodding them and goading them in the way that you want them to go and that they would stop and think next time they have that inner prick of the conscience to at least ask the question, what's going on here and am I kicking? Father, we know that your plans and desires are good for us, for our good. That doesn't mean they're going to be easy. That doesn't mean there won't be hurt and pain. But it is good and, oh, by the way, at the end of that narrow way is life. And so, Father, we cling to the promises of Jesus and we just ask now as we go out to our weeks, uh, we wouldn't be, you know, these truths and this, this testimony of Saul wouldn't be eroded with the clutter of daily life, but it would be something that just sears us in a way that we can't ignore it and we can't shake it. Renovate our hearts, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.